Hello, and welcome to Fast Pass to the Past, the theme park history podcast. I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a huge history nerd, a former Disneyland cast member, and a current annual pass holder to both Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood. And I grew up in Florida, so I actually grew up going to Universal Studios Orlando, and so I'm pretty excited to talk about part two of our sketchy origins of the Universal Orlando theme park and the creation of the once great theme park attraction, Jaws. Now, like I just said, this is part two of a two-parter, so if you haven't gone ahead and listened to part one first, There's plenty of backstabbing between Disney and Universal, so if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and listen to that and come back to us, and we'd be glad to have you. Today, we're going to dive into what made Jaws such an engineering nightmare and the lawsuit that followed this attraction. We're also going to talk about how Universal Orlando compared to its arch-rival Disney's MGM Studios and the legacy of the Jaws attraction today. So without further ado, let's take a deep dive into what became one of the most expensive disasters in theme park history. Alexander, the man with two first names and the Florida Project's only art director, defined the overall storyline with former Disney artist Tom Regenbach, sorry if I said that wrong, helping to devise a scene in which the shark tears apart a boathouse in which the guest vessel is sheltering. MCA's team then put together storyboards and a script for the attraction. According to Alexander, two guys both named Rick wrote a script that was basically his pitch word for word and they became show designers just based on that. MCA also designed the show sets in-house. Ride and show engineering was, of course, left to create the animatronic sharks and ride system. So I think we got a little bit caught up. However, that ride system and those sharks were actually the main problem with the ride. Adam Burks, a Universal show producer that comes on the scene a little later, recalls the main challenge. He says, and I quote, You can't imagine how complex it must have been to get one giant mechanical watercraft to swim up and bite another giant mechanical watercraft, which is moving with absolute precision hundreds of times per day. Now, it's also important to note these sharks were no light watercraft. They were swimming at 20 feet per second, weighed three tons each, and measured 24 feet in length. So they would basically move through the water with the thrust equivalent to that of a Boeing 747 engine. Biden show engineering through basically everything they had at this attraction, 2,000 miles of electrical wire, 7,500 tons of steel, and computer-guided hydraulic systems. However, what they couldn't seem to account for was the quote-unquote drag, as in the opposing force that happens when you glide something through the water. Now, I know some of you are kind of familiar with drag from, like, 8th grade physics, where you, like, drag your hand through the water. But now try that with a three-ton shark head going from a dead stop to launching with the speed of a jet engine. It was a really complicated piece of engineering. During testing of the boat attack scene weeks before the opening of a Universal Orlando, 
The part where the shark was supposed to grab onto the boat and tow it, the shark would often lie in a stationary position at the bottom of the lagoon, refusing to emerge. Oftentimes, its teeth, which were actually real shark teeth glued onto the model, would rip the pontoons of the boat. According to an anonymous MCA executive, Jaws was an engineering nightmare, so that inspires a lot of confidence in the ride. The spectacular finale of the ride was supposed to have the shark blown into thousands of tiny pieces, just like it was in the original movie. The boat's heroic skipper would fire a grenade into its mouth, with the shark submerging before it exploded, and chunks of shark would then shoot 10 feet in the air. To accomplish this, uh, there was a compressed air source basically below, and then the shark's flesh and the dyed water would kind of be reused and guided back into the submerged collecting device. But this was really, really complicated. I mean, you had four things going on. You had two sharks. You had a grenade being thrown, submerged, water. It was an absolute engineering nightmare. Apparently, MCA's president, Sidney Steinberg, came up to this idea and kind of forced it on Peter Alexander. According to him, there was a cigar in the mouth, apparently, and he said... In every shark picture, the shark rose up in the end. So they had to find someone that could make a shark blow up in 60 seconds, which would have been really, really awesome. But unfortunately, it almost never worked. And hence, there lies the problem with Universal's $30 million attraction. First came the Magic Kingdom. Then the incredible Epcot Center. Now comes the new Disney MGM Studios theme park. Meanwhile, while the construction and testing of Jaws was fraught with delays and setbacks, to be fair, although none of the other opening rides for Universal Orlando were going that well either, Disney opened Disney's MGM Studios as promised on May 1st, 1989. Universal Orlando and MCA pushed back their opening date until May 1st, 1990, supposedly one year after Disney. Luckily for them, many theme park goers were unhappy with the so-called rush job Eisner had done to open ahead of Universal. This was actually a legitimate complaint. There were only two so-called rides, the Great Movie Ride and the Backstage Studio Tour, although the brand new studios didn't have a ton going on or happening just yet. There were also no thrill rides, and nothing like what Universal was attempting just a couple miles away with Jaws and their King Kong theme attraction. And if you're just realizing this, Disney Hollywood Studios has gotten rid of all of their opening day attractions. Rip, great movie ride. Kind of sad, actually. Star Tours and Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular were added later that year in December, and actually in January of 1990, just a month later... Universal and MCA had to conclude that construction work on Universal Studios Florida had slipped even farther behind schedule. The May 1st opening date would now not be met, with the park more likely to open to the public in June of that year, $630 million later. Even if this level of investment, there was widespread speculation in the press that the park's rides would not be ready in time for its opening day. Like I said, all of the three headlining attractions, Jaws, Confrontation, and Earthquake, the big one, were facing major issues. In the case of Jaws, it was the same thing we talked about earlier. The robotic shark, even just a week before opening, just couldn't seem to perform in its final scene. Timing the movements of the boat such as that they matched the shark's actions was proving to be 
almost impossible. If the timing was off, Jaws simply appeared to be thrashing about in the water for no reason, which was, like, kind of funny. So it didn't help that every single time they tried to adjust it, they had to drain the whole lagoon, go 20 feet under, and make adjustments. However, in June, MCA had to call it. They had promised that they'd be open that summer, and they didn't want to miss out on the summer Orlando crowd. At this point, you have to realize that Disney World was still fairly new, and the Orlando tourist season was still fairly seasonal. So, (laughs) at 8 a.m. on June 7th, 1990, Steven Spielberg, the creative consultant for the park, led more than 50 well-known stars from stretch limousines down a red carpet towards Universal Studios Florida's entrance. Among the lineup were Sylvester Stallone, Michael J. Fox, and Bill Cosby. It was not a happy occasion. And as the celebrities arrived, the newly hired maintenance crews were struggling to wake up Earthquake the Big One, one of the other headlining attractions. A 4.30 a.m. power outage knocked out the software that managed the special effects, and it also knocked out the talkback software that managed the interaction between King Kong and the tram holding his victims on confrontation. So that was not operating properly either. Maintenance crews were forced to trigger the enormous animatronic creature's movements manually in order to ensure that Kong didn't snap his hand off. So that's great. And although confrontation and earthquake were suffering on opening day, at least they were operating. Jaws fared even worse. The ride operated sporadically for just two hours before thunderstorms in the afternoon forced it to be shut down for the entire day. Spielberg and his family were reported to have been among those trapped on the ride. So that's, you know, fun. I really (laughs) want When you're a creative consultant and you have put so much work in this ride and you bring your family and you have to be evacuated off of it, I don't think Steven Spielberg was, like, too pleased. And I'm pretty sure George Lucas kind of got that got that bet from before. And if Steven Spielberg was angry, other people were angry as well. It's reported that the guest relations department at Universal Studios Florida gave out over a thousand return tickets and refunds. The following day, Universal was forced to offer a similar deal. Everyone that bought a ticket would automatically receive a free ticket for a future visit. However, the hope was that they wouldn't use that ticket anytime soon. Opening day wasn't the end of technical problems to these attractions. It was just the beginning. Universal Studios Florida's grand opening took place on a Thursday, and as it reached its first weekend, Confrontation and Earthquake the Big One were both closed. Although signs warned that it would, too, be soon out of action, Jaws did finally open on the Saturday afternoon. Staff, though, were keen to stress that the runs were mere technical rehearsals. At one point, a boat skipper was forced to say, Imagine explosions over there! It was not good, as Jaws and the other two attractions featured predominantly in Universal Orlando's advertising up until this point. To correct this, Universal began... Under-promising and hopefully over-delivering, television, newspaper, and radio ads were all revised to avoid mentioning Jaws, confrontation, and earthquake, and when guests arrive at the park, they would be informed that none of them were operating, even if they were. In public, Universal and MCA adamantly declared that Jaws was the most reliable of its three showstoppers. 
However, in private, MCA management had began to accept the problems with the water ride were so severe that there were no quick fixes. Minor tweaks would not solve its problems, increase its reliability, or create a better guest experience. And literally at this point, they were having daily evacuations of a water ride, which is hugely costly and results in major downtimes. Not all of Jaws' problems were mechanical. During its brief run of operations in July of 1990, a guest named Anthony Simone had the unpleasant experience of being in the water with one of the ride sharks. His lawyer, Michael Diamond, claimed that the railing had broken, causing him to fall into the ride's lagoon. And one of his children actually called out, The shark's gonna eat daddy. So that was not good. Uh, he actually fell in the water a second time after being pulled back up and suffered a scraped leg and bruising, so that wasn't great either. <laughs> so just two and a half months after opening, Universal admitted defeat and closed Jaws for a seasonal refurbishment, at least according to the signs around the attraction. Show director Adam Brazer, who was hired in the months leading up to the Jaws big debut, was selected to lead the redesign. But what started as a seasoned refurbishment lasted almost two years and spurred a major lawsuit. Let's take a look at how that could have possibly happened when they already had $30 million invested. You, yeah, you, you should be at Universal Studios. Quick, into the car! Experience iconic action. So get the adrenaline pumping rush of King Kong. Soar sky high on the adventure only you, 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 Universal can bring you. Adam Bazark was originally tasked on the 1990 original version to program the passenger boats on the rideshow control system. According to him, programming the boats was an incredibly tedious process as there was no way to back the boats up. So if they wanted to change an effect in, say, scene one, they would have to ride the entire six-minute ride all around the lagoon before they could see the results of the change. This meant literally hundreds of cycles in the dead of night as they carefully programmed this attraction that really just didn't want to work. Unfortunately, this redesign did mean more boat time for Adam, although it did come with a promotion to show director. Jaws was completely closed to undergo a major overhaul, with Stephen Liu, one of the MCA executives at the time, announcing it would not reopen until the following year. However, by December of 1990, Universal was forced to admit that Jaws might not reopen until 1992, so the push was on basically for what they were hoping was summer of 1992. Meanwhile, not to be outdone, they filed a 40-page lawsuit against Ride and Show Engineering, the original contractors of the Jaws attraction. Stephen Liu said, and I quote, We are angry. We are disappointed. There are numerous design flaws compounded by poor workmanship. Instead of making the same mistake again, MCA and Universal hired numerous consultants to work on the redesign. Ride and Show Engineering was not happy to have a lawsuit on their hands. Joseph B. McHugh, its vice president of marketing and administration, told the Orlando Central, We strongly disagree with Universal claims. Except for the expense of litigation, we welcome the chance to vindicate our company. The firm claimed that it would even consider filing a counterclaim against Universal. However, the following April, Universal reached an out-of-court settlement with Biden Show Engineering. The agreement barred move parties from discussing details of the case, with Universal claiming the settlement was amicable. 
Ryan and Show Engineering, though, would not be involved in the redesign of Jaws. However, this legally mandated silence did not last long. Universal's Tom Williams blamed it on water drag. Director of Design Mark Woodbury laid the blame with it simply being the first ride they constructed. It just couldn't operate reliably. However, Ryan Show Engineering had a different point of view. One of their executives said that the management at Universal and MCA pushed to open the ride when more time was clearly needed for testing, and that Universal took control of the ride before his company could correct a problem with the speed control mechanisms on the boats. Quote, Basically, Universal didn't have any experience with a ride like this, he said. If we had to build something like this for Disneyland, Disneyland maintenance would have taken it over and made it work. So, ouch. (laughs) However, not even the settlement money from this out-of-court lawsuit could fix this ride. In January of 1982, Universal was forced to once again push back the ride's reopening date, this time into 1993. What were they possibly doing on this ride? So glad you asked. The script was enlarged, borrowing elements from the original Jaws and Jaws 2, which had recently came out. Two of the most troublesome scenes were dropped, such as the Jaw Bites boat scene and the exploding shark finale. In their place, they added a major explosion on a gas dock and a climatic scene in which the shark was electrocuted after biting under a high-voltage barge. Another new set piece would see a ring of fire created by underwater natural gas lines completely surrounding the boat. The only tracks and such were scrapped, and the ride was basically recreated all over again, while trying to use the same layout and some of the same sets and gimmicks when they could. Between the original construction and the overhaul, Universal may have spent about $70 million on this attraction and this refurb. With all of the consultants, our good pal Adam was left with the majority of the coordination. Working with Ron Griffin, which was a pyrotechnics expert, Adam helped develop the key fire sequence. Apparently, he sat in a rowboat for days that was anchored in the spot that showboat would go, testing the height and duration of the flames. For the sharks, which had suffered from unreliability and inadequate waterproofing, they turned to Oceaneering's Advanced Technologies Group as they were specialists in building the heavy-duty hydraulic machinery used by underseas oil rigs. Its work on the updated Jaws ride would be its first foray into the entertainment business. Eastport's unmanned vehicles had previously recovered tons of deep-sea wreckage, but now they were building sharks. They built a total of seven fiberglass and steel great white sharks, which proved to be much more reliable than the original version. At various points during the ride, the sharks surged in the water with a force equivalent to a 500-horsepower engine. All of the underwater equipment was encased in a hard plastic to prevent corrosion. To achieve their rapid forward lunges, each of the sharks was attached to an underwater hydraulic lift. This apparatus, weighing 12 tons, was mounted on a wheeled platform, enabling the sharks to move around the lagoon, basically swim. An estimated $40 million later, well, over $70 million if we're counting that initial $30 million, the ride debuted in August of 1993, but was officially categorized as undergoing technical rehearsals until early 1994. The extended rehearsal time also enabled Universal to protect the ride's script, 
and for the boat skippers to settle into their new roles. Five days of training was required for each skipper, including a swimming test in nearby Wet and Wild, which is a water park in Orlando. They also received an eight-page script and a nine-page workbook, and were equipped with a tongue-in-cheek dossier on people and places in Amity, an acting coach would ride through the attraction with them before signing them off as fully qualified, which is just insane to me. Uh, if a lot of you don't know that at Disneyland's very similar, like acting-wise at least, Jungle Cruise, you don't have to be signed off as an actor, and in fact, you can be placed there for basically any reason. So this is actually pretty amazing that they actually had an acting coach kind of sign off on people that are in the attraction. Despite being so much more reliable, the 1994 version was pretty costly to maintain. It was estimated the natural gas needed to fuel the climatic scene would cost the park around $2 million every single year. And that wasn't the only problem. At least once a year, the 5 million gallon lagoon was drained into two large stormwater ponds on Universal property, which eventually emptied into a drainage ditch. And then the Department of Environmental Protection got involved after an anonymous tip that pollutants were leaking out from the ride with floating oil being spotted on the stormwater ponds. Just a year after they reopened, testing showed high levels of petroleum pollutants and heavy metals. So in June of 1995, Universal had to apply for an industrial wastewater permit. They also had to switch to a new hydraulic fluid that was non-toxic and biodegradable. And this fluid was actually made by Mobile. So that really pissed off the sponsor of Confrontation, which was Texaco. <laughs> it's also important to note that throughout much of the early 2000s, Universal Orlando was struggling. The debut of a second theme park, Islands of Adventure, had gone much smoother than the opening of Universal Studios Florida. However, the marketing campaign surrounding it had been a virtual disaster, and attendance at both of the parks had disappointed. In fact, as a kid, I honestly, when I look back and I think about the time I spent there in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was not busy. I think only once did we ever wait more than an hour, and that was after the debut of a new ride in uh, Islands of Adventure. It was basically a 15-minute max for all attractions, um, kind of as far back as I can remember. But that, of course, all changed in 2010 when the Wizarding World of Harry Potter opened at Islands of Adventure. Suddenly, the park was swamped with guests, and Universal Orlando began to generate cash again. It was bolstered farther by the takeover of Universal by the deep-pocketed Comcast in 2009, with the media giant taking full control of the Florida Resort in 2011. The firm soon began to build on the success of the Harry Potter attraction by splurging hundreds of millions of dollars on new additions. With attendance at Universal Studios Florida lagging 20% behind that of Islands of Venture after the Wizarding World's debut, Comcast was not about to stop its sudden capital spending spree. Instead, it accelerated to enhance the original park, Universal Orlando. And now this is because at the time, basically, you had to choose. You could buy a two-park-per-day ticket, or you could just choose to go to one park. And of course, if you hadn't been to Harry Potter World, you were definitely going to choose Islands of Adventure. So Comcast was like, we should probably spend some more money on improving uh, the other park, Universal Orlando Classic, I guess you could say. That's actually what 
did Jaws in. In December of 2011, it was announced that Jaws would close the following month to make room for a second new attraction. Rumors immediately began to circulate that the Jaws site would be occupied by a second Harry Potter land, ensuring that fans of the Wizarding World would have to visit both parks at the resort. Ultimately, these rumors proved to be correct, with the Wizarding World of Harry Potter Diagon Alley opening on the site in 2014. Although I am a huge Harry Potter fan, and Diagon Alley, if you haven't been, is absolutely amazing. It's possibly one of the best-themed theme park lands of all time. But as a native Floridian and someone that grew up going on the Jaws attraction, it's just, it's very sad to let go of Jaws. It's hard to believe that the attraction has been closed for over five years. January 2nd of 2012, Jaws chased a boat for the last time. And it, it still has a place in the park through clues and references for fans. In Diagon Alley, there's a ton of references to the Jaws attraction that used to stand there. One of these can be found in the London waterfront area, where you find a record store with a Here's to Swimming of Bowlegged Woman, which is a toast made by the shark hunter Quint in the Steven Spielberg movie. You can also hear the song Show Me the Way to Go Home, which the three heroes sing in the movie, sung by the Shrunken Heads in display in Nocturne Alley. You can also find another Jaws reference in the storefront of the Apothecary. A set of shark jawbones is hidden away behind a variety of herbs and potions. Although the first version may have been an expensive flop, the Jaws ride did ultimately serve its purpose. Along with Back to the Future, the ride, built in 1991, now currently the Simpsons ride, the second version of the ride paid a huge part in attracting guests to Universal Studios Florida. Once they were there, it showed them that Universal could really create those kind of like Disney-style attractions, like Peter Alexander said. And they were actually edgier, definitely scarier, and definitely more technologically advanced than anything Disney was putting out at the time. Many actually even say the debut of Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney's MGM Studios in 1994 was widely seen as a response to Universal's success. If you'd like to relive the magic, or the terror, I guess, I'll also be including links to ride POVs at both the little-known original version and the second version you can go ahead and watch those on YouTube, thanks to the internet. Also, if you're looking to board an actual vehicle with Great White Sharks, then you can head to Universal Studios Japan, which is the only park that still has a fully operational Jaws ride. And you can find all of that and more in the show notes, which are at theparkhistorypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed talking about Universal Orlando. I feel that there's not a lot of history nerds about Universal Orlando and Universal in general, and it's probably because they get rid of all of their opening day attractions. That happened. But so did Hollywood Studios, and we still talk about them quite a bit. So I, I really hope you enjoyed and you learned a little bit more about the Florida parks. And if you have any ideas for future show topics or you just want to chat, Go ahead and email me at fastpasstothepast at gmail.com. And also find us on Facebook, and I check those messages as well. And if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more, please be sure to leave an iTunes review. That would be really helpful and really amazing. So I hope you guys all have a magical day, and that you don't get chased by a great white shark, unless you're going to Universal Studios Japan. Bye!